Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Hi, welcome to episode three of season three. So this episode is with Panos Kotaridis, who's a transplant consultant here at UCLH and also one of our leukemia consultants, and we talk about fertility. This is a great episode because we get to ask lots of questions that we've not had the chance to ask before and find out what the actual process of fertility looks like for patients and how we approach it on diagnosis, which can be a really, really tricky thing to do. Um, We talk both about male fertility and female fertility and what we can do to help preserve that. Tricky in the sense that some of these patients are 18, 19 and a decade before they would even thought about starting a family and here they are having to have these conversations about something that they wouldn't even think about at that point. So that is particularly difficult for them. Yeah, and it's definitely the sort of subject you wouldn't really broach with the patient if you didn't feel confident in your knowledge. And I think this has been a really useful insight into some of the conversations that might happen between the consultants and patients or the CNSs and actually getting, you know, having a chance to sort of learn a bit more about this, I think will really help us care for patients better. So thanks for coming. Um, We want to know a bit more detail about fertility um, clinics and what we offer our patients here at UCH. Okay, I think that fertility is a very important issue. And as we deliver more and more chemotherapy, especially in young patients, I mean, we really need to be very careful and we should always address uh, fertility issues at diagnosis, irrespective of the underlying hematological problem. Every single patient should have enough time to understand about toxicity of the gonads by the chemotherapy and different ways in order to prevent the damage, if we can. And obviously, uh, we have different ways to deal with the problem. Unfortunately, there are patients that need chemotherapy immediately, which means that it is almost impossible to preserve fertility. Having said that, in men it's always easy because we can still send them for sperm cryopreservation, but in women it can be very tricky as we really need minimum two to three weeks in order to harvest oocytes. Is it ever possible to preserve fertility in acute leukemias for women? Occasionally, we can still do it. I mean, I would say in acute leukemias, I mean, the first concern is, is uh, whether uh, leukemia cells that are all over the body might also command, uh, contaminate the ovaries, for example. Right. So even our colleagues are very reluctant, for example, to go for ovarian tissue crop preservation, for example, that is still that it is something else that we're doing. Is that the case uh, with lymphoma? With lymphoma, it's much easier because a lot of lymphomas can wait, mm-hmm. and, and and I mean there are so many types of non-aggressive lymphomas that can wait for weeks and months. So in reality, leukemia is the real issue in in females. I suspect that uh, the months or years to come when Uh, we will be able to give some of the monoclonal antibodies as first line, Mm -hmm. then between treatments will be a window Mm. to harvest these patients. Yes, so for example, you have a new ALL, instead of giving chemotherapy, you give steroids in a young woman, you give plenitumumab, the antibody, which is, is not causing any problems, and between treatments, 
if the patient is remission, you will be able to go and harvest the eggs. Mm -hmm. But uh, obviously you cannot do this if you have exposed your patient to chemotherapy. When you're, you want to harvest someone, would you be giving them injections that might increase their hormone levels? And does that have any effect with leukemia and other cells? Because I know in, in solid okay. tumor yeah. cancer yeah. it does. So Is you're right, you're completely right, because obviously you have to stimulate. Yes, so we give hormones, but there's no impact in, in hematological okay. malignancies. There is a concern in some of the, for example, estrogen-dependent tumors like in breast cancer. Mm. But in hematology, there is no concern. What does the actual process look like for a, a, a woman from start to finish? So essentially, the... uh, okay, so when the period starts, then obviously we start the stimulation at the same time with the injections. The patient has to be monitored on a very regular basis and a couple of weeks later we can harvest the eggs which is a very minimum procedure mm. essentially uh, but still requires general anesthesia uh, in order to go under ultrasound guidance and then uh, harvest the eggs and then obviously we have uh, the option either to cryopreserve the eggs or to fertilize the eggs and then to cryopreserve uh, embryos in the past, the success rate with embryos was much, much higher compared to uh, egg cryopreservation. So it's better uh, that it's fertilized? Uh, in the past, but okay. not anymore because the techniques have changed a lot within the last three years and the results are identical, Good. irrespective of whether you cryopreserve oocytes or embryos. Well, that's good because that's otherwise, you would, yeah. if you didn't yeah. have a partner and you had less of a chance, so now you'd have the same chance, which would be amazing. Yeah, right. in the past was the problem that mm, always yeah. you required a partner. Yeah, But now it, it is, the last two or three years, extremely similar, the results. So is it with patients that we're able to do it with, with AML, is it yeah. those that um, present early on and are quite well, so we can wait a bit longer? But I think that, okay, yes, I mean, if we have a young patient who presents with, let's say, uh, an MDS phase that is transforming to AML and still the counts are decent uh, and the platelets are, are still okay, uh, then there's always a possibility for this to be considered. But in reality, most of the patients present mm. with mm. Uh, high white cell count or, or, I mean, with heavy infiltration and required treatment before the sunset, as we say in yeah. leukemia. But there is a tiny fraction of patients where this can be can be considered still. And which chemo agents would actually make you say that it's likely that the, there's just no chance of fertility for women afterwards? We say that we have regimes mm -hmm. uh, with uh, that are very toxic. So we we uh, subdivide all these regimes in three different groups. The ones that can cause infertility with a rate of more than 95%. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously TBI. So if you get a transplant with total body radiation, the infertility rate is, is 99% plus. Okay. Okay. Uh, or myeloblative transplant, which either can be total body radiation or busulfan and cyclophosphamide. Mm. Then on the other end, we have mild chemotherapy, which can slightly affect uh, fertility. Obviously, uh, most of the patients uh, 
will recover, but then we have some other factors, and one of the main factors is the age of the patient. So it is different if you are in, uh, let's say, in your 20s and you undergo chemotherapy, and different if you are 30. So young patients recover uh, much, much better with the same regimes. And then, uh, I mean, easy, let's say, in terms of gonadotoxicity drug is uh, methotrexate, six mercaptopurine, so all the medications and the drugs that we use for the treatment of acute lymphoblastic leukemia or even for acute myeloid leukemia because the rate of infertility in AML uh, with conventional chemotherapy is no more than uh, 40%. Okay. And then uh, in the middle you have some other medications. I mean obviously alkylating agents are very gonadotoxic but it depends how you give them. Uh, for example, if you give um, alkylating agents uh, in the context of uh, an autograph using mm. melphalan, uh, the infertility rate is, is extremely high. If you use it in a small dose, I mean, there's always a possibility to escape. Yeah. What happens in children pre-puberty, pre I mean, yeah. what, what, what's their option? Like, how, how does that work? I mean, it is, it is a bit can't. more difficult, of course, and, and, and you can still get tissue. And, and there are so many techniques nowadays. And the years to come, I'm sure that we will see uh, improvement in all these techniques towards being able to culture uh, these cells and mature and, and but at the moment it is it, it is very difficult especially for kids yeah. and is that to do with like freezing I've read something about freezing ovarian tissue yeah is that what you yeah mean? yeah we we can do this even though this is not a funded um, right. uh, service it, it is still very experimental even though there are pregnancies successful pregnancies from ovarian tissue crown preservation it is not funded but there are live births uh, from this. So yes, I mean, things change rapidly. Uh, we we do it here, and at the moment uh, we freeze the, the tissue in Oxford, but not routinely, not routinely. This is a problem. I don't think that uh, the next year or so uh, this will be funded by the NHS. When someone's diagnosed with AML and you bring up the discussion of fertility, is that difficult or how does that go? Because obviously it's the last thing on their mind, I would imagine, when they've just been diagnosed with, you know, a cancer. Because I know we've had some younger men especially not really wanting to do it or quite, yeah. you know, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. they're trying. Yeah. 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 A degree of acceptance. Uh, yes, yeah. it is very it's difficult. Important. Yes, you're absolutely right because a lot of patients to start with, I mean, obviously the shock of diagnosis is, is enough in order to forget or to try to push away everything else. And when you try to discuss fertility, a lot of patients might say, oh, no, I'm not interested in this. I'm not prepared to discuss it now or I'm not prepared to do anything. Uh, but I think that we need to persist a bit more as patients change their mind. As uh, the treatment progresses, then obviously and start thinking all these issues, it is very difficult to go back. So we have to make sure that from the very, very, very beginning, we discuss in full all these issues 
despite that some of the patients are so refractory uh, yeah. to discuss it. Because I'd imagine like in you know, five or six years' time when they're back to work and, and feeling yeah. well and got yeah. through it, that you know, it's going to be a big part of their lives if they can't have children. But I suppose that initial diagnosis, you know, they've got cancer. And you're talking about, well, you know, you might want a family one day. They're like, well, yeah. I might not be here tomorrow. And it just it must be quite a difficult uh, conversation to start. Yeah. Yeah, um, for, yeah. you, for you guys. And, and, and we I get think it too, that, don't we? Nowadays, we are becoming more sensitive with fertility issues. And, and all colleagues, I mean, including uh, medical and non-medical staff, uh, discussed the issues with the patients, which was not the case 10, 15 years ago. We still see in the clinic patients who never had a discussion regarding yeah. fertility. And if you see some of the publications... Uh, going back in '85, so I mean, 20 years ago, uh, there were patients claiming that, or in the study, there was a particular study that has been published in a very good journal where only 15.15% of patients were able to recall a conversation yeah. with a doctor regarding fertility. I mean, this does not happen anymore. Mm. Do you think that's because they thought there was just very little they'd be able to do? Uh, one of the reasons, yes. Or that it yes. was just a really difficult yes. conversation? Uh, it can also, I mean, probably it is multifactorial, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah, different yeah. aspects. But, but still, I mean, sperm cryopreservation, it is something that, that obviously we were able to do it 30, 35 years ago and, and, and still we see patients that 10 or 15 years ago uh, failed to have uh, sperm color preservation. And is there anything we can do for patients that might not have the time to get eggs collected? Do we offer women any other ways of protecting their ovaries? Because it's the damage to the ovaries that's the problem. Yeah, so there are some other ways, but we're not sure whether uh, these different uh, maneuvers can, can work. So, for example, as you're aware, we use these generates analogs, uh, which essentially you try to suppress the ovarian function while you give chemotherapy and preserve the fertility. So the generates uh, uh, treatment essentially in hematological patients started about 15 years ago. Uh, just to go back to history, there was a study from Israel uh, where colleagues uh, were giving uh, these medications in patients with Hodgkin's lymphoma and then claimed that you can protect the ovarian function. Uh, subsequently, there were a lot of studies, but all of them were studies relying on retrospective data, so not really any randomized studies uh, in patients with hematological disorders. There are currently a lot of studies in solid tumors, and then there were a lot of studies in breast cancer, but we lack uh, knowledge mm. in patients with uh, hematological problems. So it might be some protection, but, but I would say that the results look great with uh, this approach. And I suppose with all the clinical trials that we are asking them to be involved with for their treatment, asking them to be involved in another research study about another part of their treatment that they don't really want to talk about, it's probably difficult, would be difficult to recruit mm. patients and information. Yeah, yeah. And uh, unfortunately, uh, in, in terms of fertility, in hematology, most, 
most of the studies, if not all of the studies, are retrospective studies. Uh, I mean, currently we try to set up a prospective study in patients with acute leukemia and lymphoma and uh, follow the uh, gonadal function prospectively, so essentially to uh, assess the function before treatment and uh, after treatment at different time points. Uh, mainly patients who receive conventional chemotherapy, as we know that uh, patients with myeloblative treatment essentially become infertile. And if I can take the opportunity to say something else, which is very relevant at this stage, <laughs> is that... Please proceed. Please, uh, please Yeah, uh, so even though we say that... Uh, uh, total body radiation or full myeloblative transplant can cause infertility, we still see pregnancies. And it is extremely, extremely important, uh, doctor, uh, doctors and nurses, uh, to advise patients essentially when they go home that it is still a possibility for a pregnancy. So they have to be very careful. I mean, if you see the European bone marrow transplant data, and there was a study that has been published years ago, there are still pregnancies uh, in patients who had myeloblative transplants or autologous stem cell transplants with uh, heavy regimes mm. like uh, merfalan, I mean, beam, autograft. So contraception, when patients go home, <laughs> is extremely, extremely important issue, and it has to be discussed. Yeah, and what, is, what would be the risks of a newly transplanted patient that became pregnant? Because they're still on quite a lot of toxic medication. Absolutely, yes, yeah. the, the, the risk is like huge. Okay. Yeah. When would it be safe to, for someone to start trying then? Would it be sort of after like six or 12 months down the line, or would it be further away? Or? Okay, so in hematology, we normally say two years, two years uh, okay. after being in remission, yes. but. I mean, the, the treating physician should be able to discuss with the patient. I mean, um, most of the aggressive disease that remain in remission two years after being off treatment uh, is more likely that these disorders have been cured. And are these the people that you see in your clinic? What happens in your clinic? Is it newly diagnosed patients or is it patients post-treatment that want to come back for some support? Okay, so we see, first of all, we see, yes, new patients that have been just diagnosed in order to discuss uh, fertility preservation. Then uh, we have patients that have completed treatment and consider family and this is the bulk of the patients that mainly come to assess fertility mm-hmm. and see whether we'll be able to have family. Then we see a lot of patients for consideration of HRT, hormone replacement mm-hmm. treatment. So this is another big area, of course, that uh, we need to cover, as you are aware. A lot of patients uh, will develop postmenopausal symptoms uh, due to premature ovarian failure. And it is normal practice, obviously, to uh, support these patients with HRT. So uh, currently, 
when all the acute issues have been addressed. So we don't want the transplant patient a month after the transplant to come to the clinic yeah. when there are some other problems and infections and graft versus disease. So when everything else has been addressed, and especially when patients start developing uh, a PMS, uh, postmenopausal symptoms, then we see them in the clinic and we always consider HRT which is a very safe approach and essentially what we do is to replace what the ovaries cannot produce so you don't expose your patient to additional estrogen as this can be associated with certain risk like increased risk of, of breast cancer mm. and this is what always patients always worry, about. worry yeah. about whether there's increased risk uh, the other thing that obviously needs to be considered is the, uh, the risk of thrombosis in these patients. So we are always concerned. Uh, I mean, uh, all our patients have a big line, and when you have a clot, then uh, it is very difficult to recommend or to give hormone replacement treatment. So we need to take a very detailed history uh, to see if there are any other clotting events in the family. In some of the patients with high-risk features, we might have to consider a full thrombophilia screening. And in order to minimize the risk, uh, sometimes we have to consider HRT in the form of a patch, rather giving tablets, mm. which we know from some of the studies that the risk is much lower giving patches rather uh, embarking on tablets. How do you have patients referred to you? Does that come through the transplant clinic? Or? So, yes, the patients are referred either from uh, the GPs, can be referred from the consultants in, in the clinic, uh, the specialist nurses. Is this a service that other centres do as well, or is, the, or is this approach kind of unique at UCLH? It was, okay, we started this clinic in, in 2004 and mm. we, when we started the clinic with uh, Miss Melanie Davis, uh, sitting one hematologist and one gynecologist uh, in the same room obviously was unique in mm. the UK, so it was the very first clinic in the UK <laughs> and at that time when it uh, when uh, people knew about the clinic we started getting referrals from uh, from around London as well as outside London. Uh, but within the last, let's say, seven years, uh, there are some other places running similar uh, late-effect fertility clinics. But we still get a lot of referrals uh, uh, from outside. And just out of interest, because, I mean, you work as a leukemia consultant and a transplant consultant. You cover both specialties, don't you? Do you have to deal with fertility pre-transplant typically, or is it actually the where the patient has originally been treated that's usually been, okay, for, been sort mean, of looked yeah. into? And yeah. Actually, yeah, I mean, in the transplant setting, obviously, it is mainly for patients who have never been exposed to chemotherapy before, and you mm -hmm. still need to consider fertility. So sometimes we can have, let's say, a patient with a myelodysplastic syndrome mm -hmm. uh, requiring a transplant who never had any chemo before. And obviously, there is plenty of time in yeah. order to consider all different options. Uh, or a young patient, for example, with myelofibrosis. But in reality, uh, most of the patients coming for a transplant are infertile. It is primarily a discussion with uh, the doctors or myself, a diagnosis rather to the time point when they come for the transplant. Mm -hmm. 
So we really should, when we're even admitting patients, making sure that those conversations have happened. And then, then obviously we need your help because yeah. in London, in uh, where there's a community with uh, a lot of people from different background and different culture, it can be extremely, extremely difficult. And it is not always uh, easy to approach. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have experienced different, very, very difficult conversations. And then this is where we need to work together, to work all together. Mm. I mean, I guess with any patient, that information being given right at the beginning near diagnosis is almost certainly going to be forgotten. So it is something where nurses can reiterate those messages and double check people still understand, you know, on subsequent courses. But uh, my feeling is that our Specialists, CNSs here are very good yeah. with this and always discuss this, uh, these issues with patients. Mm. Yeah. Great. Yeah, fantastic. good. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Thanks. Okay.